Great. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be here with you all this morning. Um, as Fred said, I'm Chief Strategy Officer for IDEAS. IDEAS is an international community development organization. We work in primarily in five different countries around the world, uh, working with marginalized and vulnerable populations. Um, and I imagine some of you are wondering, why is Bill here, other than the fact that he's a friend of Fred? Uh, my kids really like our pastor. We, I live now uh, in the Chicago area, in the, in the western suburbs of Chicago. And every time Pastor Kim isn't preaching at our church, my kids get really bummed out. And so if that's how you're feeling this morning, I really wanted to hear Fred this morning. Uh, I'm going to put all my cards on the table. I'm going to tell you why I'm here right at the outset. Uh, in Ideas, we are working to connect God's people who express their holy calling through work, which is all of you, to God's global mission, which is where Ideas works, in response to the Great Commission. And before you decide, well, this message isn't really for me uh, because you don't have the call to go overseas, you don't feel like that's where God is leading you, I want to ask you to hear me out, hear what I have to say. Because whether or not you go overseas or you live your whole life here in the U.S., if you've entrusted your life to Jesus, you are one of God's people, and he has called you to express your holy calling through your work. And this applies to you whether you're a student or a stay-at-home parent, whether you're an employee or a business owner, whether you're retired, whether your work is paid or unpaid. This is a message for each of us because we're going to examine what it means to engage in faithful work. And we will hopefully see together that when we embrace that we are God's handiwork, and that all our work is a holy calling, we are freed to live lives of intentionality and faithful risk for God's glory and for our good. So let's pray. Dear Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for the years of, of friendship with Fred, for us being able to connect as I've come back to the U.S. Lord, I thank you for every person you have brought into this place that we share a belief and trust in your love for us and guide my words and open our hearts to what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2.10 and the letter, the letter of Ephesians is considered a general letter. It does not appear to have been written to address a specific situation. So instead it's written to outline some of the core truths of the Christian faith. And two of the most well-known verses in the New Testament in the Protestant tradition are Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where Paul writes, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In these two verses, Paul makes it clear that all our work contributes nothing to God's gift of salvation, which is by grace through faith. But Paul doesn't end his discussion of work there. He doesn't end the letter in verse 9. He continues to verse 10, where he writes, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So in verses 8 and 9, Paul makes it clear that grace, faith, and salvation are not by works, 
But in verse 10, he states that grace, faith, and salvation are for the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So it is of utmost importance for us to figure out how we should understand the, on average, 90,000 hours, or roughly 30% of our waking hours throughout our lives, that we dedicate to vocational work, as well as which aspects of these 90,000 hours qualify as the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I want to start by learning a little bit about your view of work, and I'm going to do this using a live poll. So the first question is, uh, in missions, the work of church planting, evangelism, and discipleship is spiritually more valuable than work as an engineer, a business person, or a farmer. So do you agree or disagree with this statement? Okay, second question. The second question is, do you agree or disagree with the statement that God is primarily interested in using work and professional skills to open up opportunities for spiritual conversation? Now let's go on to the next one. Which of the following would you say qualifies as one of the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do? It's really interesting, right? Because you come here, you're worshiping with a group of people around you. Uh, you assume you have a similar set of uh, assumptions. And then we see, well, actually 50% of the people disagree with me on this question, um, which is great because as we have worked through this message, what I want to ask you to do is to ask yourself, is what I'm saying, does it either confirm, does it challenge, or maybe even change your perspective to some of these questions? Uh, in 2002, my wife, this is my lovely wife, and I made the decision to move to Beirut, Lebanon in response to Jesus's great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. At that time, I wrestled with this question of what, go do what exactly? And perhaps at some point in your life, you've asked yourself a similar question. Maybe you've said, Lord, I'm available, but what, what exactly do you want me to do with this openness towards you? And looking back now, I believe that I got my view of work wrong at that time because I was really thinking about my work primarily as a tool that's only purpose was to open doors for the real spiritual activity, the real spiritually valuable work of sharing the good news of Jesus. And you might be sitting here and saying, well, there's no problem with that. I know some of you are sitting that because I just saw the answers to what we saw in our poll. Um, but here's the problem with that perspective. When we view our work as primarily a tool, whether we see it as a tool that God can use or we see it as a tool for making money, we are basically saying that God is asking the majority of his people to spend the majority of their lives engaged in activities that have absolutely no spiritual significance. And that, work, that view of work is not consistent with the picture of work we see in the scriptures. In Genesis, God created Adam and Eve to work. God gave work to them as a blessing. And because we represent God in and through our lives, all of our work has spiritual value. And yet when the corruption of sin entered the world, our views of work were distorted. The fall shifted our focus from the blessings of work to the toil of work. And because of the frustration that is now a part of work, we sometimes assume that there must be more meaningful kinds of work and less meaningful kinds of work. 
we elevate certain jobs as more, val more valuable or more reflective of God's natures than others. Maybe we see evangelism. I, I did years ago with Fred, see evangelism as more, more valuable than, than something else. But nothing could be further from the truth. As Tim Keller said, in Genesis, we see God as a gardener. And in the New Testament, we see him as a carpenter. That no task is too small a vessel to hold the immense dignity of work given by God. The fall also shifted our focus from viewing work as an act of worship to God to seeing it through the lens of what it provides for us. And when we understand work as an act of worship, we can no longer see our jobs primarily through the lens of what we get from them. Our work is holy. It's meant to be set apart to the Lord. And we're called to offer God the what and the how of our work, as well as ask him where he wants us to worship him through our work. And when we understand that all work is holy, then it makes sense that the Great Commission is for the whole church. And when we connect the holiness of our work with God's Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, all of a sudden the possibilities of the ways we can engage in God's mission explode. Because the fall distorts our perspective by separating faith and work. But God restores our perspective by calling us to faithful work. Now, I want to be clear that it's not just our vocational work that has spiritual value, but actually everything we do has spiritual value. This includes running errands, resting, watching TV, the work you do as a husband or a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a friend, as a daughter, as a son, as a co-worker, the activities that you engage in after you retire. Everything you do, if it's done in a spirit of worship, is an act of worship. So with this in mind, I want us to look at Ephesians 2.10 because that, this verse can help us understand God's view of work. And so if we look at 2.10, Ephesians 2.10, Paul begins by stating emphatically, for we are God's. He makes it clear that you are not your vocation. Paul doesn't say, for we are businessmen or businesswomen. He doesn't say, for we are pastors or preachers. He doesn't say, for we are husbands or wives or children or friends. He says, for we are God's. And the force of the statement, we are God's handiwork, is that it is God, not anything we have done or will do, that gives us worth and value. Our identity, our value, and our worth are rooted in the truth that we belong to God. Full stop. Nothing else. But sometimes we elevate our work so that it becomes our identity. You know, at work, we're often appreciated, sometimes appreciated. We're respected. We're compensated. We're seen as valuable based on what we produce. And it's a very tangible way to measure, the, measure our worth. It's a simple way to judge the success or failure of our lives. And similarly, in communities of faith, at times we can be tempted to, me to measure our value by our spiritual activities. We can begin to judge our lives as successful if we are engaged in spiritual things or get discouraged when we feel like we're falling short of God's expectations. And sadly, in the shadows of Christian history, we find trails 
of broken lives, when church leaders or missionaries or Christians in the marketplace have elevated the identity they get from their work at the expense of those they love. And when we connect our identity to our work, we create an idol that is fickle and false. For we are gods, but we are not just gods. Paul writes, for we are God's handiwork, which means you are uniquely designed by God. Now, sometimes we act like God has created people on an assembly line. We act like we are God's mass-produced product. We design discipleship programs or worship spaces. We try to get as many people as we can from A to Z as quickly and efficiently as possible. And, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's no, no problem with creating programs as long as we remember that God's plan was not to try to mass-produce the most efficient human design. Your, your life is not a design flaw. God has not given the good works to someone more talented. He's not given the meaningful work to someone more faithful. He's not given valuable work to those who have left their secular vocations to pursue, quote-unquote, full-time ministry. That every one of us was hand-carved by the careful and steady hand of the Master knit together from a mosaic of traits from our whole family history with abilities and limitations that are meant to draw us closer to him and closer to one another. Uh, I'm a parent of a child with disabilities, and my child was hand-carved by the master. His challenges and limitations are not a mistake. And through my child, through raising my child, I've come to understand that my own limitations, my own challenges, and my own disabilities are not a mistake. They have actually helped draw me to a deeper relationship with Jesus and with others. And the simple truth is that God's vision for you is different than God's vision for me. And we can quickly derail our view of God's good works when we start comparing ourselves to one another. Uh, I've known some amazing people, uh, but sometimes I find myself comparing my life to theirs. I think, well, I'll never be able to evangelize like, like Eric does or disciple like Fred or Dave or, or speak Arabic like, like Robert. I'll never be able to make money like Michael or I'm not going to be able to travel the world like, like Judy when we compare God's vision for the handcrafted me with God's vision for the handcrafted you, we start to hope for the wrong things. I can start to hope for or really envy the works God has prepared for you instead of valuing and pursuing the works God has prepared for me to do. We can grow discouraged when the Christian life becomes too prescriptive. When it becomes do as I do, the message of the gospel is not preach like I preach. It's not serve like I serve. It's not invest like I invest. It's love whom I love and trust whom I trust. So in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 
What makes our work good isn't what we do. It's how we do it. In its simplest form, our work is meant to reflect the essence of God's great commandment. Our work is meant to be done in the love of God and for the good of our neighbor. But what does that mean practically? When, when I was a boy, I grew up, as Fred said, up in, near Sacramento. And the American River runs through Sacramento. And I can remember being drawn to the curiosity of an eddy. And an eddy is a current of water that's running the opposite direction of the river. And eddies are caused by an obstruction, such as a rock or a fallen tree, that interrupts the river's flow. And eddies give us a picture of what it means practically to do good works. The world that we live in is like a river. It's a river of human choices flowing away from God and his kingdom. And what makes our work good is when we stand firm and when we make daily choices that prioritize the love of God, the love of others, and the values of God's kingdom. Maybe that means giving someone else an opportunity that you really want for yourself. Maybe it's making a choice not to prioritize the company's bottom line. Maybe it's extending grace to a coworker who drives you crazy. We're not called to step out of the river of brokenness. We're, we're called to stand firm in the river, feel the full force of the current, and be unmoved. And when we work this way, we create an obstruction where those who are bearing, being carried along by the current of human brokenness can temporarily, through their encounter with us, experience the reverse flow of the kingdom of God. Where they can experience God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Now some people may momentarily experience God's kingdom through the ways we work and then be swept right back into the river's main current. Others may find in their encounter with us a life-giving space where they can find rest and peace. Others, we hope, will join with us, will stand in the river with us and create a larger eddy. Until Jesus comes again, we're never going to change the flow of the river. I've tried. You can't do it. Most people in the world will continue to walk away from God but when we stand firm, when we live out the truths of God's word in our choices and our actions, the work we do, whatever it may be, is good. And through the ways we work, we give the world a glimpse of God's kingdom on earth as it is and will be in heaven. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So why is it important <clears throat> that God prepared good works in advance for us? Now, I'm not going to try to resolve the mystery of God's foreknowledge and our human responsibility in 15 minutes. I'm going to leave that to Fred. I think he's going to do that over coffee on that Saturday, right? Um, <clears throat> but it is significant. This is significant that God prepared these works in advance for us. Because what that means is that we are God's mission. Now, I grew up in the church, and somewhere along the, the way, I began believing that God cared more about the outcomes of my good works than the, facts, than the fact that God prepared these good works 
in advance for me. But the kingdom has come. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. The battle's already won. Or as it says in 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that overcame the world, even our faith. Jesus has already disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross, as it says in Colossians. God doesn't need our good works to accomplish his ultimate purposes in the world. My, my daughter plays soccer, and my wife and I will go watch her play. Uh, she's 13. But my wife doesn't have a competitive bone in her body. Not, not an, even an ounce of competitiveness in my wife. So my wife goes to watch my daughter. She doesn't care if the team wins or loses. She's not caught up trying to evaluate the quality of my, do my daughter's soccer skills. She's focused completely on my daughter. And when my daughter does something that brings her joy on the field, my wife rejoices with her. And when my daughter is upset or sad because of something she's done on the field, my wife comforts her. All she cares about is my daughter. And I think that's how God views our lives. We think he cares about our play, our lives, the impacts, the, out, the way we're impacting the match. We think we have to live our lives perfectly or play our best for him to be pleased. We see him as the over-involved soccer mom or dad who's yelling at us from the sidelines when we mess up. And when we mess up, we think we may just, we may just have ruined God's plan for us and wrecked his mission to the world. A friend of mine told me that his version of seeing God as the over-involved soccer mom was his seeing God as the overall over-involved parent, hyper-focused on academic achievement, which he said made it feel impossible for him to live up to God's expectations. But the battle is already won. The match has been settled. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. God won. And because of the righteousness of Jesus, you've passed the test. Nothing you do in your life is going to impact the outcome of God's plan positively or negatively. You are his mission. God's purpose is to help you reach the fullness of the person he created you to be as you bear his image in the world. He wants to rejoice with you when you rejoice. He wants to sorrow with you when you sorrow. And he wants you to know that no matter how you feel about the way you're living your life, whether you've done something that garners the praise of those around you or you've made terrible mistakes, he's for you. Now, I want to say clearly, I'm not saying that the works you do don't matter. They do. God invites us to participate in his mission. The good works that have been prepared for us are for God's glory and therefore are good. And these works were created for us to do. We have to choose to do the works God has prepared for us. Now, now you might be following along, analyzing what I'm saying, and say, wait a minute. Let me just get this straight. You said all types of works are a holy calling. You said everything we do, if we do it in spirit of worship, is an act of worship. You said that what makes our work good isn't what we do, it's how we do it. And you said that the good works we do don't earn us favor with God and aren't necessary for God to accomplish his plan. But now you're saying we have to choose to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. I'll have Fred explain all that later. No, no you're correct. This is, this is the mystery. Because the works that God has prepared for us 
that are for our good are often really hard. And our natural inclination is to choose what is easy over what is difficult. What is best for us? The works God has prepared, Jesus modeled in the way of the cross. That's how he designed us to be. And this means we have to be intentional about the choices we make in our lives. Later in chapter, in the chapter in Ephesians 5, Paul writes, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, I want to be clear because this verse, I think, can easily be misunderstood if we interpret making the most of every opportunity as choosing to do the things that we think have the most impact. But if we are God's mission, then making the most of every opportunity is not about the impact we make, it's about the intentionality of the choices we make to live faithful lives. The way we talk about this in ideas is we stress the importance of choosing intentionality over impact. At Ideas, we intentionally choose to step in deep, difficult sections of the river of human brokenness, to work with, with vulnerable, vulnerable and marginalized communities, to work um, in anti-human trafficking and, uh, and with people who have been on the margins of society, and demonstrating love through building authentic relationships and addressing complex needs within a community takes years decades, it takes generations, it, it takes the lives of men and women who seem at times to make little difference, slowly building up an obstruction in the river until one day enough people have stood firm for long enough together that an eddy emerges where people or communities or societies can experience the reverse flow of God's kingdom. At Ideas, through our work, our goal is to create deep, abiding eddies of true and lasting hope. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret, having lived overseas for so long. If you choose to go overseas, you very well may have a quote-unquote less impactful life than you stay in your own culture, if you stay in your own culture. Because when you choose to go overseas, you make the choice to surrender your ability to effectively communicate. You're at a disadvantage in understanding the cultural norms and practices. You're an outsider. I, you know, I've preached from time to time when I used to come back to the U.S. and I went out to breakfast with a guy who, who supported me and he said, Bill, you know, you're a good preacher. How do you deal with pride? I said, Rick, when you live in a culture where you can't say what you want to say and no one really cares what you have to say, it really does humble you. <laughs> you don't struggle with pride. And I've raised my support, my own financial support for over 30 years. Part of my job is to recruit people into ideas and to cross-cultural work. And it's difficult to sell my work or the work of ideas with the tagline, step into cultural and linguistic disability. Accomplish less. Join ideas and have a diminished impact with your life. But if the motivating factor that influences the type of work we choose to do is immediate impact, then no one in the church would or should respond to the Great Commission to go to the nations. But if the motivating factor that influences the type of works you choose to do are your desire to be intentional, to be faithful, your desire to display God's glory, and your belief that the works you've been called to are for your spiritual good, there is nothing that will drive you to a deeper dependence on God than to rely on Him for your financial provision as you offer your professional work to Him as an act of worship in a culture 
where it will be underappreciated and difficult. I'm grateful for the things I was allowed to see God do through my life for 17 years in Beirut, but I'm much more thankful for the things that I saw God do in me in those 17 years. To learn to rely on him in a country where the only thing stable is instability. To rely on him for provision when month to month I didn't know if I'd have enough. I experienced the goodness of God in ways that I know I would not have if I hadn't taken that step of faith. Mike Schumann summed it up nicely when he wrote, no man will ever stumble into faithfulness and, faithful, and no faithful man will ever tell you his road was easy. Finally, when we understand that the good works God prepared for us are for our good, we are freed up to live lives of faithful risk. I've, I've always been uncomfortable with the story of the talents in Matthew 25 where Jesus you know, gives three servants some money one goes makes more, a lot, one makes a little, and one doesn't do, put, you know, buries it. And then Jesus tells how the master scolds the one who buries the money. I've, uh, I've struggled with that story because I chose to step into cultural and linguistic challenges when I moved overseas. And over the years, I wrestled with the lie that perhaps I was not being faithful enough with what I'd been given because I didn't see the yield that I would have liked. But now I realize this story, the point of this parable is not about the fact that the good servant earned five more talents and the wicked servant didn't earn anything. This parable is a call to live a life of faithful risk. The unfaithful servant was unwilling to risk losing his master's money because he was afraid of failing or more pointedly, afraid that his master would be harsh with him if he failed. So instead he buried what was given to him to avoid the risk of losing what he'd been given. But because we serve a faithful, merciful, loving God, our worth is not tied to the outcome of our work or the impact of our lives. Because of that, we can live lives of faithful risk. And if you treat your work as a holy calling, it's risky. It's stepping into the unknown in faith believing. It's saying, God, I'll take what you've given me. I'll risk it all for your sake. It's not about making the, the best or most productive investment of your skills and abilities. It's not about the yield or the return or success or your impact. It's about trusting that we are God's handiwork and that God wants us to take what we've been given, our abilities and our limitations, the exciting and the mundane, and offer it to him as a spiritual act of worship for his glory, wherever that may take us and whatever the outcome maybe. Over, ye over the years, I've seen at times how I've mistakenly elevated certain kinds of work and devalued other kinds of work. I've made the mistake of reducing work to a tool. And instead of embracing my value and worth as being rooted in the truth that I belong to God, I've looked for my work to give me a sense of identity and purpose. Now, tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up, you're going to start your day here, and you're going to face the reality of daily living. You may get frustrated with a coworker. You may be overwhelmed by a list of what you believe are meaningless tasks you need to accomplish. Some of you may feel burnt out. You may feel disconnected. You may be living in the toil and drudgery that is part of your work as a result of the fall. So what steps can you take to rediscover the holiness of your work in your everyday life? 
I don't have a formula for you, unfortunately. I'm not going to tell you that these, your negative feelings or questions about your work will go away if you start your day with prayer, or if you read your Bible, or if you attend church, or if you join a small group. The last thing I want to do is give you a set of prescribed activities that end up just being another way of you feeling like you might fall short. Because I, I don't know you. I know Fred. I don't know the rest of you. I don't know what you need to help you trust that the daily, the mundane, every little, every little thing you do has the potential to be one of the good works God has prepared for you as long as you stand firm and work in a spirit of worship as an act of worship. I do know from my own personal experience that to live this way is difficult. It's not easy. <clears throat> so what I can do this morning is I can remind you of what's true. All your work is a holy calling. Whether you're doing dishes or leading someone to Jesus, whether your work's here or your work's across the world. Because your work is holy, everything you do was designed to be done through the love of God and for the good of others in demonstration of the values of God's kingdom. And because your work is holy, you are asked to offer God the what, the how, and the where of your vocation. I also want to remind you that you are not your vocation, your identity, your value, your worth. Come from the truth that you belong to God, full stop. You are God's handiwork. You've been uniquely designed by God, and you are still being handcrafted for the good works that God prepared in advance for you, not for anyone else. What makes your work good isn't what you do, it is how you work. And God prepared good works in advance for you because we are God's mission. He doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes, but he invites us as his image bearers into his kingdom work wherever that may be for his glory and for our good. But he still gives us a choice. The work he prepared for us in advance is for us to choose to do. So God asks us to intentionally make difficult choices that prioritize faithfulness over fruitfulness, risk over efficiency, yield, and impact. In Ephesians 2.10, the Apostle Paul wrote, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when we embrace that we are God's handiwork and all our work is a holy calling, we are free to live lives of intentionality and faithful risk for God's glory and for our good. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that this morning we will be encouraged to know that you have handcrafted each of us, that you have prepared works for each of us, that the works that you've prepared for others are not for us to do, not for us to envy, and that you have invited us to live in your kingdom in a way that we can live the way we were originally designed to live that was demonstrated through the incarnation in the life of Jesus in the way of the cross. Give us the courage to take steps of intentionality and faithful risk. Help us to trust and believe that what you are doing through and in our lives is for your glory, but ultimately for our good. In Jesus' name I pray.